All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. On the show today, I have a very special guest. We have Robert Gregor. Uh, Robert is a really interesting guy. He is a registered clinical counselor, a certified EMDR therapist, and proved EMDR consultant. He's also a published author on EMDR, the owner and CEO of Gregor Counseling, and the creator of Signature One and Done, a total immersion package, and One and Done legacy package. Robert, really happy to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Toby. Appreciate it. And thank you to the listeners for uh, allowing me to be in your ears. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, you mentioned uh, a lot about EMDR, you know, in, in your bio. I'm, I'm really curious, you know, as far as this is something that hasn't been, uh, I don't believe, brought up in previous shows. So, you know, maybe just for our listeners, if we could kind of give kind of an introduction to EMDR, what it is, um, and then sort of how you've, how you've incorporated that into your practice. Yeah, sure. I, I get that asked that all the time. What is EMDR? Um, so what it stands for is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And as you can imagine, that's a mouthful. So we just use the acronym EMDR. What EMDR is, is a accelerated form of neurological processing. Some EMDR therapists use EMDR as a standalone therapy as a whole, which is what I do, as well as some therapists use EMDR as a tool in their uh, practice. So what EMDR does that, first of all, I gotta say it looks really, really strange. Um, so uh, pretty classically, a therapist will be sitting in front of the client and waving their hand back and forth in front of their face and the client follows um, their, with their eyes back and forth and, or tapping on the knees back and forth. And it looks very, very odd. It almost looks like hypnosis or something like that was not. Um, but what EMDR does is we identify the source of somebody's distress, um, which would be trauma or negative experiences in, in, their, in one's life. And we can talk more about that in a bit. But um, that's the, the source of the distress. And what we need to do with EMDR is access both hemispheres of the brain back and forth in alternating fashion. So that allows the brain to finally process information that was not properly processed at the time of these pivotal incidents. Does that make sense so far? It does. Okay. It's so, yeah, so it's, it, it, yeah, I often say that EMDR is not talk therapy. You know, I don't, um, sit in front of my client we don't talk for the entire time that i'm working with them um, in fact there's very little talking that happens in emdr of course we have to communicate and you know provide consent as to what's happening and you know have to get uh, a rough idea of what we're going to be focusing on but when we're actually processing the desensitization and reprocessing part of emdr there's very little talking which actually allows the individual to fall deeper into their felt sense rather than staying in the left side of the brain and the, uh, you know, utilizing their, um, their logical reasoning and, you know, the Broca's area where language is. And 
So uh, it looks very strange, but it's very effective and it's, it works much, much quicker than um, other types of therapies. Okay. And, and then specifically, so, it, you know, say you have, uh, you know, a, a patient come in who's, who's, you know, a good fit for this therapy, you know, what is the actual process? Can you kind of uh, walk me through the steps of, of what you are actually doing with them? Yeah, so I'll tell you a little bit about uh, EMDR. You know, it's an eight-phase process. Um, so for everybody, it's going to look a bit the same. And then I do things a little bit differently than the regular EMDR therapist, in fact, quite a bit differently. So what usually happens is immediately upon impact, or in fact, upon contact, I mean, the patient's going to uh, talk and we find out a little bit about their history and immediately we're going to teach some um, coping skills and some people cringe when they hear that because I always say um, effective EMDR therapy should mean that you don't need coping skills anymore. So what happens but we do have to teach these uh, preparation skills so that the individual can have something to use um, prior to actually desensitizing. So um, a lot of history taking, then we, we, we go into preparation or we do them kind of at the same time. And then we're gonna identify that the, the, the number of traumas or negative experiences that are directly related to the negative belief, which is the cause of the distress. So, um, pretty often, you know, I work with uh, leaders in business and film and, and, and sports are my three, my three categories. So oftentimes I might get something like I need to be perfect or I'm worthless or um, I'm unlovable or I'm a failure. And so these are, you know, not uh, particular to this group of people, but this is often what I get. So that negative belief is going to be coming up quite frequently uh, throughout the individual's life, causing enormous amounts of stress. Um, you know, I think about board meetings, for example, and not being able to speak up or, um, you know, maybe being on a show and not being able to, you know, to fully uh, drop into what you want to say. All different kinds of things can happen. So we're gonna identify what is the, the core belief of that individual's issue. Then we're gonna identify all of the relevant memories that are related to that. And then when we're ready, we're gonna start processing. And that's where it looks weird. And you know the hand goes up and back and forth or um, online, of course, with uh, the pandemic. Uh, the individual will be following a ball back and forth instead of being in the office. And uh, we're going to then, once that memory, um, let's say it's um, you're coming home and your father's drunk and, you know, there's, you know, stuff smashed everywhere or he's yelling or she's yelling even, um, you know, so that that's an imprinted memory. And then what happens is the EMDR that we do the processing literally takes all of the pain away. So that memory is now a fact. It, there's still gonna be, be some emotion attached to it um, because the EMDR doesn't eliminate you know, 
appropriate memory, appropriate feelings to that memory. Um, but there's no good, there's no just stress anymore. It's not like you feel like you're gonna you know, throw up every time you think about that event. Then we attach a positive belief to it um, that the individual wants to believe, like let's say I'm good enough as I am, or I am worthy of love. And that now feels completely true when we tie that together with that memory. And then we do some checks with the body. And you know, there's always there's a few checks that we do to make sure that everything has been processed. But that in a nutshell is the whole process of EMDR. And that's what you'll get with uh, regular EMDR therapists. Um, and th the thing that's different with me is that um, I used to work in what I call a pay-as-you-go format, where I'd see a client for 60 minutes here, 90 minutes there. And this process would be faster than talk therapy. <laughs> I, I was a talk therapist for many years and got burnt out, um, I think, pretty quickly, actually. And uh, I needed to find something, a way to help my clients and a little bit faster. And what I, then I, I found EMDR. And this allowed me to shorten treatment significantly for a lot of my clients. But for a lot of my, um, my high-profile uh, high professional clients, they didn't have three months even to devote to therapy. Um, when they're, you know, say running a, a multinational company or something like that, they don't have that kind of a time or so I ended up finding a way how to do this over the course of an entire, just one weekend. So the entire treatment in three days, which has been phenomenal for my practice, for my clients. So quite a little bit different how I do it, but it's, you know, it's it's fantastic interesting so you're doing kind of these like intensives of, yeah, exactly of, yeah gotcha so you know i uh, i'm curious you know as far as like if you're you know say you know addressing these you know sort of issues uh you know that your patients have you know with with say traditional psychotherapy versus emdr you know, what, what do you feel that sort of EMDR brings to the table or enables your patients to, to sort of achieve that talk therapy might not? Yeah, that's a really great question. And, and I think that I, my answer has evolved over the years. Um, initially, I, I thought that um, they were not really compatible. But now I'm finding that um, although most of my clients have been in talk therapy for sometimes 10, 20 years um, and still not getting you know, full relief of their issue. I do find that um, individuals that have experience in talk therapy uh, have developed some skills to become more self-aware. Um, certainly being in talk therapy, you will learn some coping strategies and, and methods to lower some distress throughout your life and manage it better which is all good. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but EMDR does what talk therapy can't. And when we talk about um, an individual constantly being triggered to think about, you know, a past experience, like, you know, common therapeutic question is, you know, how, how do you, 
how did your parents help you with that experience? Or tell me about your parents, right? And so if that's distressing, the individual is going to go back into their past and relive these traumatic incidents. Um, like, for example, me thinking about an abusive relationship. And every time that I would think about that abusive relationship, I would be reliving it. It is trauma. And if all you do is talk about a traumatic experience, often what's happening is you could be re-traumatized and now it could be worse because there's no resolution at that time. So EMDR allows you to actually get the full resolution from that experience, not just bring it up, but actually process it from the right side of the brain over to the left side of the brain, because during a, a traumatic incident, regardless of what it is, when I say trauma, please know that I don't mean that we're talking terrorist bombing or a car crash or war or sexual abuse. We're talking anything at any time in that individual's life that was ever overwhelming and they felt powerless at the same time. So when you think about for a bigger conversation, COVID-19, the entire world has been experiencing a shared collective traumatic experience for a long period of time. That is a trauma. Um, but what EMDR will do then is allow you to, to access that traumatic experience, focus on the feelings and allow the feelings in the body to move and the brain finally processes that experience because otherwise it's the brain basically just pauses and basically takes a snapshot of that experience so that you never have to experience that again and while this traumatic event's happening the brain is operating in a survival mode as you've probably heard fight flight freeze faints shut down all those things happen and that information does not get processed by the brain. So EMDR allows you to get the full resolution, finally process what was never processed, and then you can move on with your life very quickly. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, as far as are, are your patients, uh, you know, are they usually aware of, you know, maybe the issues, the, the traumatic events or, or experiences that, are preventing them from, you know, either feeling, you know, happy or, or achieving whatever, you know, they're trying to achieve right now. Are they pretty cognizant of that usually? Or is it your job to kind of, you know, play the detective and, and help them figure it out? Um, I'm going to go right in the middle there because okay. some of my clients are aware of having, you know, these traumatic incidents. And, and, I, I often find that the clear, what we call big T trauma, what is what I refer to as, you know, the car crash or the terrorist bombing or something like that, you, that you know it happened, there was a clear date and, and end time of that event. Um, and then there's the small T traumas, which are things that go under the radar. They're very subtle, like maybe constantly um, being belittled by a parent your whole life and you just it's just normal you don't really think anything of it or always having to prove yourself without really there's no major event that happened but it's just sort of slid under the radar or like me i was bullied in school on a consistent basis i was called short fat with glasses that was my nickname and 
you know, over time, this becomes a, a small T trauma. So um, I, when I was in my EMDR therapy, I could, I could tell my, my therapist that, you know, uh, yeah, this, this event happened with my ex-girlfriend um, and um, I've been struggling with this problem for a long time, but I wasn't able to really get a clear sense of all of the things that are attached to it. Just like my clients, they may know, yeah, I've had an abusive father in my childhood that might have something to do with it. Or I know that I was in a car accident on this date and that probably has something to do with my feelings of being afraid of driving now. But often my clients are so focused on the pain. So it's like this fog that's right in front of their face. They can't really see through it. Um, all the client has to know is this is what I'm struggling with. This is the feeling that I'm having. This is the behavior that I'm seeing myself do. And I will be that detective. I will assess that negative core belief. And when I find it, um, usually pretty quickly, that client will feel it kind of like a, almost like a punch in the gut. Like, oh, yep, there it is. And, and I'll, I can tell very you know, by, by paying attention to the client's re response. As soon as that belief is that it's a neurological framework that's in the brain, as soon as that becomes highlighted, all those events now become present that are related to that neurological um, sequence. So the brain just wants to let go of this stuff. It just wants to go there so it's going to start bringing up all these memories. So there's a little bit of work that I do to get some things that might be a little bit stuck, but mostly the brain just wants to go as fast as possible. Gotcha. So one of the things that, you know, I, I think about, and I'm just curious your perspective on is, you know, how do you, how are you able to tell whether you know, some, some trauma is still affecting a patient, you know, because, you know, what, like, is there, are there clear indicators, you know, say, you know, people experienced horrible traumatic things, but, but they were able to, to process them, you know, there's like, like, I guess I'm, I'm trying to come at it from like a scientific, like, well, how do we know if this is fully processed? Yeah. Um, but, but do, can, we, can we sort of answer that question? Yes, we can. Absolutely. That's a great question. And it's a common one, too, because, you know, clients want to know, how do I know this is going to work, <laughs> right? Which is the, that's why we go into treatment. So um, everything is, is measured. It's, there's a high amount of, of measurability with our work. So we use a, what's called a subjective units of distress scale. So the event is a, the scale is, let's say zero distress is totally neutral. doesn't have to be positive. It's just neutral. And then 10 is the highest amount of distress you can possibly imagine. And when you think about that event, then you're going to notice where on that scale are you? And if your answer is zero, which is 99% of the, time that's what we get sometimes it goes to a one because it makes sense for that particular event but we're, mostly it's a zero if that's your answer then that uh, that has been processed and if you fully believe that positive belief now let's say i am worthy of love then we move on 
and we do check, you know, the next time that we, I see that client, I check on the previous day's work. How do you, what comes up when you think about that memory now? And the answer is mostly, yeah, that's, that was a crappy time in my life. That was a, a, a really horrible event, but it's just doesn't matter anymore. I'm past it. It's like looking at this. It's like looking out of a window before being focused on a particular part of the, say a, a courtyard or something that you're looking at. And then now if, after EMDR, there's the courtyard still there. The event is still there. You still know that like, I still know I was bullied as a kid. And I can look at that memory and feel sad for my 11-year-old self, but there's no distress anymore. So I'm looking at the same event, but from a different window now. Got it. That makes sense. Okay. So I guess, uh, you know, switching gears a little bit, I, I had seen something, um, you know, in the in your bio just about, you know, the uh, the mask that, uh, the masks that people wear. Um, and I was wondering if you could sort of, you know, talk a little about that. Um, you know, you talk about, uh, how to, how to remove them. So, so what are, what are masks in a, in a psychological sense? Yeah. So, um, there's, there's nothing in the DSM about masks that people wear, but it's just a term that, that I use, um, where I, a lot of my clients find that they show up into the world before working with me wearing this mask that they believed that they thought the world wanted to see, right? The, um, let's take a CEO, for example, and this is a really classic one for me because you know, this, hopefully things will change, but the kind of the old mentality was that the CEO had to appear this very strong, a stoic individual that you know had no weaknesses and if they were to mention any kind of distress that they're feeling any anxiety any depression any any kind of emotional experience that wasn't joy or maybe anger was allowed a little bit there but if it wasn't those two things then the others in charge of them, like say the board members, for example, might feel that they're unfit to be at the helm. And this comes up in so many other professions as well. I mean, I certainly felt it myself when I first began into my psychotherapy career. You, most people heard of this as imposter syndrome. Right? You, you, you want to do this thing, but you feel that maybe you're not good enough. Or maybe if other people um, knew what you're thinking or feeling on the inside, they wouldn't accept you. You wouldn't be worthy of you know, the, the job that you're doing or worthy of that friendship or worthy of that partner or worthy of X, Y, Z, you fill in the blank. So this is the mask that I help my clients to remove. We we don't need to be in the world afraid of showing our true authentic selves because that in fact gives other people the permission to also be real with each other. And when they're done working with me, their authentic self is so grounded in who they really are that it doesn't matter if somebody criticizes them. 
know, pretty pretty common one will be you know a, a a celebrity and posting something on Instagram or Twitter, and you know you get the trolls that you know criticize you, and it's you can look at that experience and just think, wow, that individual must really be in pain to make a comment like that to me. And it has nothing to do with me whatsoever. So you can then respond in compassion and love and kindness for that individual and, and thank them for their opinion it has nothing to do. So that's what I mean by removing the mask. It doesn't have to be something that you're, you're not hiding anymore. You're being your real self. Right. Right. And yeah, I mean, from, from what you're saying, it sounds like, you know, instead of, you know, letting other people sort of dictate how you, you know, you feel, you can still have, you know, their, all the, the sort of BS that's coming in and, you know, but, but then you can choose to see it, but at the same time, not let it affect you as much. It kind of sounds like what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. You know, so for many, many people's um, sense of value comes from an external source. They, they're, they feel value, validated and valued when, you know, a producer says good job or, you know, the board says you did a great job or, you know, your, your mother says, hey, you did something really well here. And so, so it's all, it, a lot of people grow up with that external validation whereas really where the individual needs to go is the individual themselves internally has to just know one thousand percent i am valuable regardless i am worthy i am good enough so it doesn't matter what somebody else says about you because it's irrelevant right and i'm i'm curious you know as far as with you know, with people that you see, you know, how, how often are people, you know, say, you know, it sounds like you're working with a lot of these kind of peak performers, people who've achieved all of this, you know, external success, but, you know, maybe there's still something internally that, that doesn't feel quite right. You know, do you feel like a lot of these people, have they gotten to where they are and achieved what they have because they're doing, you know, what, what they think other people want them to do versus what they actually want to do ver like the the sort of external making the external things your source of happiness versus internal like do you see that play out yeah. a lot yeah yeah you're you're exactly right that that oftentimes um you know quote unquote successful people um are are achieving that level of success because of fear I need to be the best here or else, or I need to uh, make X amount of dollars at any cost because I feel like I'm going to um, not be able to survive. You know, I've, I've, I've worked with millionaires who are worried about spending, you know, $10 on a hamburger, <laughs> you know, because, and that, that is fear. So, and, and it's, and this isn't just a, just relevant to the leaders that I work with, but it's relevant to anybody, anybody, no matter who you are, can struggle with these same issues. Right. Absolutely. Um, switching gears a little bit. Uh, I'm curious, you know, as far as, you know, 
with with working all the with these peak performers what do you see you know what i'm always curious asking people this you know what what sort of traits or behaviors what what do you observe you know i get that these people are coming to you because there's something you know wrong that they're trying to fix but at the same time you are exposed to you know a lot of uber you know successful people i'm curious just what you've noticed in your work as far as different whether it's mindsets or, or actions, what, what enables or, or what, what, uh, what, uh, what separates these people from the rest of the pack per se? Um, that's a really great question. And it's a, I think it's a really complicated one because it's going to be quite different, I think, for um, each person. But I think there are some qualities or some characteristics that um, these leaders that I work with do share. I think number one, uh, it is a mindset. Um, and that has obviously helped after working with me as well that to remove any blocks in that mindset, but there has to be a belief in oneself that they are, that you are capable of accomplishing whatever it is that you're setting out to do. If you don't believe in that, you can't really sell out and give it your all. So that you have to believe in yourself completely. You have to not be afraid of failure. In fact, you have to not be afraid of anything. Um, fear is the, ugh, it is the killer of entrepreneurial dreams. Um, the other thing is there has to be some routines that are useful to maintain a particular state of being. So meditation, yoga, exercise, all of these things are really effective to maintain the body, maintain the mind, and get your, yourself into a state. Now, a lot of people do those things without doing the internal work that I do with them, and it makes it so much harder for them to drop into these particular states or instead of, you know, only needing maybe 15, 20 minutes of meditation, they might have to do like an hour or, you know, a two hour workout. And, and sometimes these things can become addictions themselves is the only way that I can cope with this is if I go work out. Um, that, that's not healthy, right? So it, by removing the blocks in their mind and in their body as to whatever is holding them back, then it allows those to be even more effective. So that's, that's some of the things. Um, and then depending on, on, you know, the size of that individual's following or their, their organization, you know, if I'm, if I'm working with a solopreneur, then obviously that person has to wear many hats and that, you know, then time management becomes incredibly important um, and prioritizing what tasks we're going to focus on um, in their business. But if I'm working with somebody that has a team, then being able to delegate properly and form, you know, effective team around you, that is critical for that individual's success because, you know, not everybody is a finance major. <laughs> not everybody is going to be, um, is maybe they can do it, but they're not enjoying that task. And that is such a, it's such a, um, deflator for that creative spark 
that the successful individual needs in order to maintain and increase their success. Got it. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to switch gears again a little bit, you know, and, and touch on something that you'd mentioned in your, in your profile, um, as far as the, the law of attraction. Um, and you, you mentioned what you've been told isn't the whole truth. So I'm really curious to, to hear your, your take on that. Cause that's something that, that I also, you know, like endorse like certain, certain aspects of it, but then it, there's other things that like, don't, so I'm, I'm just curious to hear your take on that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for asking. It's, it's, it's something that I don't talk about that often, but it's, it is, I, I devoted a chapter in my book about it because I thought it was important. Um, you know, I, I've been fascinated by the law of attraction as soon as I heard about it, probably 10 or 20 years ago now. And, um, the, you know, the basic premise is that what thoughts you put out into the universe, you will attract it back. And I kept wondering to myself, why is this not happening? Why am I not getting, you know, the financial abundance that, that they're, that, you know, the, the secret talks about, or, you know, why, why am I still struggling here when I was putting this out into the universe? Well, the problem is, is that your brain, I view it very much as a conductor and a generator. So you put out these thoughts into the universe and the question, the reason why you might not get the results that you're looking for is because you're putting out two different signals or multiple signals, different frequencies. So if, for example, you say, um, I want a hundred thousand dollars and you put that out and you imagine holding on to that hundred thousand dollars and you, you know, make a use Canva and you make a check and you dress it to hundred thousand dollars and you're doing all these things that are important to um, have a vision board and you're doing these things. But if underneath in your unconscious or in the back of your mind, I like to call it as an inner critic in the back of our minds, you also believe, yeah, I don't deserve that. Oh, I can't do that. Oh, I'm going to fail. Now you're putting out two different signals into the universe and you're going to get mixed results. Gotcha. Gotcha. So sort of identifying what, what those signals are, I guess. Um, it, do you, do you feel like there's a lot of kind of misconceptions as far as, you know, it seems like certain times people, people sort of, you know, think that, Oh, like thinking, thinking positively or thinking like happy thoughts or whatever, like that's going to make a change. And, but like, they don't do the action to follow it up. Is that, I mean, that from my perspective, that's, that's one of the issues, you know, maybe not even with how it was intended originally, but just in the way people interpret that, that sort of like magical thinking. What's your, what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that so so what I so what I'm hearing you say is that if um, you, you are say you want to be a millionaire, and you're um, not following through on the behaviors that would that that a millionaire would behave in, 
then you are not allowing that to unfold. And just going a little bit deeper as to the why you aren't behaving that way, because you don't fully believe it. There's doubt in your mind and there's lack in your mind where, yeah, yeah, but I've got all these, you know, these bills that I have to pay. And yeah, but, you know, I'm still walking on this. I'm still using transit or yeah, but, and that yeah, but will kill you. It will slow down the law of attraction. It will slow down the manifestations of that because you are sending out the other signal that says, I am not really believing that I'm a millionaire. You know, so it's obviously it gets tricky when people are in tight scenarios and, you know, you have to pay your bills and, you know, so it's, there, there's, it's not easy, but you do have to believe a hundred percent that this is real. It's going to happen. Absolutely. Any doubt that's creeping in is just going to really be detrimental. Right. Right. So you mentioned, uh, you mentioned your book. And I'm, I'm curious if, you know, what, what was, well, I guess if we could kind of, you know, talk about kind of what, what is it a EMDR book? Yeah, it's so, so the title of it is you need therapy kind of tongue in cheek. Um, and then the subtitles EMDR real people with real problems getting real help. And I wrote this book as an introduction for at the time potential clients and still use it for potential clients, but um, it's really uh, to understand what EMDR is. I, I've, I've even given it to some of uh, my consultees um, and you know, people that are, are learning about EMDR from the therapeutic level to be practitioners and they just want an extra um, viewpoint on it, maybe to, to uh, refresh their skills. But it's really, you know, the, the point of it was to talk about what, first of all, what distress is, how common are, is the need for therapy? And it's pretty common. Um, a lot of more people are distressed than, you know, you might think. And my personal belief is that we are all trauma survivors, that we've all been through something that was distressing. It doesn't mean that we're all, you know, abuse survivors, or we've all been through, you know, a big T trauma, but I truly, truly believe that nobody escapes childhood unscathed. So from that perspective, I'm really outlining, you know, the kinds of things that can be traumatic for individuals and what's happening in the brain and why that's, why that's being, you know, held, why you're still feeling that distress. And then, you know, a, a brief introduction as to EMDR and the different phases that we talked about earlier today. And, um, and, a little, and there's, there's quite a bit about my own story um, because I think that's an important element for um, individuals looking to, to, to work with a therapist to know that the therapist has actually suffered and they have actually been in therapy themselves and et cetera. Um, and then for individuals that um, are looking to find an EMDR therapist, for them, there's a, a section as to how, to how to go about doing that. And, um, and of course there's statistics as to how effective EMDR is for, um, people and studies that have been documented and, 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 um, published that show that, you know, EMDR is incredibly effective and, 
oftentimes much more than you know, regular talk therapy or medication and, um, and things like that. Right. Awesome. That, that sounds really interesting. I'm definitely going to go check that out. Um, I'm curious, you know, you know, say our, you know, our listeners who, you know, maybe they, they find this really interesting, just talking about hearing about EMDR, um, you know, if, uh, you know, I guess if they're in Vancouver, you know, they could come see you, but what are there, are there organizations or is there something to look for? You know, if, if someone did want to kind of go, go ahead and pursue that, what, what sort of recommendations would you give? Yeah. Thanks for asking that. Um, yeah. So obviously for me, it would be in BC. I can work with anybody in BC and I'm expanding into some provinces and states now. Um, but for, for it, just in general, uh, if you're in Canada, like me, there is uh, emdrcanada.org. Um, and you can link that up in the show notes for people. Absolutely. Um, that will give you access to a directory of EMDR therapists throughout Canada. There is the EMDR International Association or emdria.org. And that is literally therapists all over the world um, are, are part of this directory. So you can find probably somebody in your area. There are some spaces where we don't yet have therapists there, but, um, and then there's also an EMDR Europe. So there's, there's a, quite a few directories, but all you have to do is go onto one of those sites, type in your area, and you'll get a list of EMDR therapists. Um, and you know, the way that it, it works is there's basic therapists and there's certified therapists, approved consultants and trainers. And so that the more things that the individual, the therapist has behind their name, probably the more training that they're going to have. Um, but there's so much, you know, that has to go into it. So I would recommend finding somebody that, um, looks appealing to you and then click on their website, get a sense of the therapist personality. Um, cause just because they do EMDR doesn't mean they're going to be a good fit for you. Uh, it has to be, it's, it's a human relationship. So you have to find a good fit from that perspective as well. But, um, EMDR is a pretty structured protocol, so it should be more or less um, the same. Right on. Sweet. Well, Rob, I've, you know, had a great time, you know, talking with you on the show today. Um, I'm curious, you know, if, if listeners want to, uh, you know, find out more about your work or your book, um, and we can link all this stuff in the show notes, but, you know, what, what sort of uh, resources would you direct them towards? Yeah, um, you can go to my website and um, contact me that way, grigorcounseling.com with two L's. Um, and um, I also have some videos on YouTube and um, I, there's a link on my website as well for some videos, but there's some great, um, remember we talked about the early stage in EMDR, the preparation stage. Um, you can find out how to do a container in a calm place just by watching these videos that I made. Um, and that's going to help to, you know, d uh, lower some of the distress and allow you to cope a little bit better until you find an EMDR therapist. But there's so many other things too that people can do, um, like learning to meditate, 
Um, there's apps, you know, out there that you can do that. I think Headspace is one. And uh, there's a great app that I love giving out to my clients called PTSD Coach. And I highly recommend using the American version. It's a little bit better than the Canadian one. Um, but it will, it'll help you identify what it is that you're feeling and it'll suggest some coping strategies for you to, uh, to take advantage of. And, 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 it, and it builds, um, or sorry, it, it uh, over time learns a little bit more about what you like, what you don't like, and then we'll start suggesting the ones that are good for you. And um, I think, so if that, those are some great resources that I like to recommend to people. And um, if anybody has any questions, they can always shoot me uh, an, an email right there from my, my contact form and I'll answer. Awesome. Sounds great. Well, if you guys enjoyed the show today, um, go ahead and like and subscribe to our YouTube channel where Ross goes wetsuit. Uh, you can also find audio versions of the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. So go ahead, check us out whichever which way you want. Uh, Rob, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Toby. We could have probably talked for a couple of more hours, you know. Agreed. We'll have to have <laughs> you back on. Lovely. And thank you so much to the listeners for having me too. Absolutely.